0: You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from House for All Sinners and Saints. We are an Evangelical Lutheran Church in America congregation in Denver, Colorado, and you can find out more about us at www.houseforall.org. Grace, peace, and mercy is yours from the Triune God. Amen. Once in the middle of the night, I was watching really bad Christian television on cable. And when I was well past the point of delirium, there was a Bible trivia game show on. And I was feeling pretty proud about getting so many of the answers right when up came a question that completely stumped me. The young handsome host read the following question from a blue index card. In what book of the Bible does the story of Jonah appear? And for the life of me, I couldn't remember. For those of you playing along at home, the answer is Jonah. The story of Jonah appears in the book of Jonah. Who knew? I need a refund on that seminary education, I think. Anyhow, today we heard the middle part of Jonah, which, uh, but I absolutely have to tell you the whole story because, for my money, it's one of the best in the Bible. The first thing you need to know is that Jonah's people were part of ancient Israel, and Israel had this enemy called Assyria, the imperial force of the day, and their capital was Nineveh. They had ravaged and pillaged so much of Israel, taking their wealth and occupying their land and demanding that the people of Israel pay them tribute. Think District 12 in the capital, I guess. So the Assyrians were horrible, and the destruction of Assyria could only mean good news for Israel. Okay, so, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and God says, go to that wicked city of Nineveh, because those guys suck so much that their wickedness is like totally stinking up heaven. It's kind of like that. And then, <laughs> um, the word of the Lord, it's like, if the word of the Lord was coming to me and said, hey Nadia, you know those people who hurt children, and are mean, and greedy, and violent, and you know those movie theater shooters, and extremists who attack innocents. Well, you're right, those people suck, so I'd like for you to cry out against them for me. Can you imagine, I mean, I don't know about you, but I would take God up on that in a heartbeat. I'd throw up some tweets, and I'd blog about it, and even show up in person with a bullhorn to cry out against my enemies, the horrible people. So, it's kind of weird that Jonah doesn't take God up on this offer. Instead, Jonah takes off in the other direction. God says for him to go speak against his enemy, and you'd think he'd be up for it, but instead Jonah takes off. Now comes the part of the story that folks are maybe more familiar with. Jonah takes a boat in the opposite direction of Nineveh, at which point God causes some pretty bad storms, and the sailors realize that Jonah is the problem, and then they throw him overboard. Then, just before drowning, Jonah is swallowed by a big fish. That's what's on children's wallpaper. Um... <laughs> Jonah was swallowed by a big fish, and for three days, our little hero is given, like, a gastronomic timeout. Um, there's really nothing like sitting in the dark, slimy belly of an aquatic animal for a few days to make you reflect. So from inside the fish, Jonah thanks God for God's mercy in saving him from drowning. At which point, God made the fish fit him up on the shores of, you guessed it, Nineveh, qualifying that as what must be considered the worst cab ride in history. (laughs) So this is where our reading for today picks up, right here. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time, and this time Jonah relents and enters Nineveh, the city of his enemies, the people he hated more than anyone else. The people who had caused him and his people great harm. And he preached. You think Lutheran sermons are short. He preached an eight-word sermon. He stood in the city and said, 40 days more and Nineveh will be destroyed. I imagine him doing this kind of like the way I used to apologize to my siblings. (laughs) You know, quietly with a clenched jaw and like zero sincerity. And the thing is, It worked. Jonah's half-assed, reluctant prophecy worked. His enemies repented, and God did not destroy them. But here's the rub. If the behavior of the Assyrians was Jonah's problem, and they repented, then he should be happy, right? Wrong, because Jonah immediately finds a little hill on which to pout like a big fat baby about all of this. And from that little pathetic hill outside Nineveh, Jonah finally admits why he was such a reluctant prophet. It wasn't because of low self-esteem or homesickness or fear of public speaking. No. When his enemies repent and are spared, Jonah is like, yeah, that's why I didn't want this stupid job in the first place, because I knew, God, that you were gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and that's why I didn't want to have anything to do with this project and God was like, wait, you're angry? and Jonah's like, yeah, I'm angry and here's where he becomes even more of a drama queen He says, he literally says, I would rather die than for my enemies to be spared I would rather die than for my enemies to be spared Humor aside, that's what's hard about reading Jonah. Because I have to look at how much I, too, need my enemies, thank you very much, to stay my enemies. Like, it's hard to know who I am if I don't know who I'm against. Like last year, when a website, literally a website called the American conservative, wrote a positive review of my book, Total Identity Crisis. (laughs) But maybe we need our enemies so that we can neatly avoid the ways in which we too are enemies. Enemies of grace, enemies of forgiveness, enemies of those we harm, and when God does not act as we think God should, perhaps we are even enemies toward God. Showing up with a bullhorn to cry out against someone else is seriously the best way for me to avoid being the one cried out against. Maybe we need our enemies to stay our enemies, not just as individuals, but even as a nation. I mean, not for nothing, but you know where modern-day Nineveh is? Mosul in Iraq. And this summer, ISIS destroyed a mosque that was traditionally understood to be the burial site of Jonah. Our enemy destroyed the burial site of the prophet who resented mercy being shown to his enemy. I mean, how many generations, how many layers of human BS do we need in order to get the message? In the end, God doesn't leave Jonah. Jonah who I like to call the very worst prophet. Also my favorite. As Jonah sits on his saddle hill and sees at how his enemy remains undestroyed, God sends, it's weird, but God sends a bush to grow over him and provide him shelter. And Jonah was grateful for the bush. But then God, the next day, sends a worm to destroy the bush, and Jonah's like, what the heck? It's a weird object lesson, but... Here's how, literally here's how the book of Jonah ends. By God saying to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And Jonah's like, yeah, angry enough to die. And then God says, wait, you're concerned about the bush, which you didn't even grow. It came into being in a night and it perished in a night. So why shouldn't I, God, be concerned about a city in which there are more than 120,000 persons. All right, fair enough, God says. They don't know their right hand from their left, but there's 120,000 of them and a lot of animals. That's literally how the book ends. God, God says, and a lot of animals. End a book. <clears throat> so this week I was totally relating to Jonah and his terrible attitude toward God. Since God has also not seen clear to destroy my enemies either, I started to wonder about God's answer to Jonah. I wondered about why God would have the bad taste to have love and concern towards those that we would want to destroy. But then I thought about, about what would life in Nineveh really actually be like? What would life in Nineveh and life in Mosul be like? I thought about how Likely it was that on any given day, yes, the powerful might be violent, they might be taking the land of others, they might be demanding unfair taxes, but that also on any given day in that city, there would be children in the streets and cattle in the fields and women giving birth. Perhaps this is one reason why God didn't want Nineveh destroyed, because There is no act of vengeance or violence that affects only its intended target. Collateral damage, be it emotional or physical, is always concomitant to retribution because there are human beings that love every single person we may want to destroy. This week, as jury selection started here in Denver for the trial of the Aurora movie theater shooter James Holmes, My mind kept thinking of Nineveh and Jonah and ISIS and Mosul and how as much of a mass murderer as James Holmes is, how he has a mother who years ago gave birth to a baby boy and he has a God. And God loves you and God loves your enemies and God loves those who love your enemies. Which means that God is gracious and merciful slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love towards me even though I am, in all likelihood, someone else's enemy. How many layers of divine mercy do we need before we get the message? I just wonder if maybe good news can only be good news if it's good news for everyone. If not, it's just our own schemes. Which again is why sometimes I like to say that the gospel is like the worst good news I've ever heard. (laughs) Jonah definitely understood that. Amen.